So let's begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Our Lady of Mercy, and the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, I have to leave out a fellow named, I don't think I'm going to spell it right, Apollinarius. Apollinarius was a ally of Athanasius, a friend of his, who, in fact, however, fell into heresy. Arius says, the Logos is created, the Word is created, and became flesh. And in the man Jesus, there is no human soul. Simply, the Logos acts directly, is the principle of Jesus' acts of thought and will. Apollinarius says, no, Arius, you're wrong. The Word is uncreated and eternally with God and God. Therefore, God became man. The Logos took flesh. However, Apollinarius agrees with Arius. There's no human soul in Jesus. So, God became a man. The Logos took flesh and directly animated the flesh, the body of Christ. So, there's no human mind and human will in Christ. Rather, the Word immediately provides, as it were, the thought and willing of the Incarnate. That got condemned by the Church. Now, the person who wrote against it most vividly is Gregory of Nazianzus, great theologian, a Cappadocian father, who came a generation after Athanasius, and used arguments from Athanasius against Apollinarius. He said, what God did not become, he did not save. God became man and united himself to humanity so that we might be united to God. Therefore, if God really united himself to a true humanity and became a human uh, being, then he truly assumed not only a body, but also a soul, and had a mind and a will. And that became orthodoxy. And those are readings in your uh, units to read Gregory of Nazianzus' short letter where he famously argues this against Apollinarius. However, it's important because when we get to the next controversy in Nestorius, which is the major Christological controversy in the ancient world, Nestorius is in a way, he falls into error, but he's writing against Apollinarius. He wants to safeguard the full reality of the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is a fully human being, body and soul, having a mind and a will that are human. Well, he also wants to, to, to safeguard against Arius that, God, that Jesus is truly God. That the Son, the Logos, is truly God. So, in a way, Nestorius is sort of a good guy in his intentions, kind of. But it's not enough to believe against Apollinarius that Jesus is truly human with a body and soul and against Arius that Jesus is truly divine. You also cannot get on the wrong side of the mother of God. And that's what Nestorius did. He got on the wrong side of the mother of God. Which they don't call her the scepter of orthodoxy for nothing. Okay, well anyway. Anyway, so the, the controversy, the Nestorian controversy breaks out in 428. So we're like a hundred years later, you know, or a hundred years, we've jumped a hundred years ahead. And it breaks out because of the title that's being used by the people of God in the liturgy, Theotokos, which I'm sure you've heard, T-H-E-O-T-O-K-O-S, which means literally, she who bears God, or the mother of God, the bearer of God. People of God are calling Mary the Theotokos, the mother of God. And Nestorius rejected, he was the Archbishop of Constantinople, so, number two in the church, right? You've got Rome, and then you've got 
Constantinople. And he is uh, the Archbishop, the Patriarch, and he rejects the use of this title in the liturgy, Mother of God. Why? Well, because he thinks it risks attributing human birth and physical change to the divinity of Christ. If God was born of Mary, then God underwent physical change and human birth, as if God in His deity, in His divine nature, could proceed forth from Mary. So instead he prefers the term Christotokos, Christ-bearer or Mother of Christ. And that wasn't going to win the day. So if you look at the sheet I've given you, you have the first homily against the Theotokos. This is what happens when you criticize the Virgin Mary in history. You go down as written homilies like the first letter against the Theotokos. History is written by the victors, so you have to be careful to try to get on the right side, you know. Otherwise, you anyway, poor man. All right, he got exiled in the end to um, the Arabian Peninsula. Anyway. Um, this is the first homily against the Theotokos. Does God have a mother? Mary did not give birth to the Godhead, right, to the deity. A creature did not produce him who is uncreatable. The Father has not just recently generated God the Logos from the Virgin. A creature did not produce the Creator. Rather, Sorry, it's not she, but she gave birth to the human being, the instrument of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit did not create the Logos. He's worried here about some kind of weird Aryan, kind of semi-Aryan belief that you would have like the Logos be a creature in the womb of Mary, made by the Holy Spirit, fashioned by the Holy Spirit, because she's overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Rather, he formed out of the Virgin, the Holy Spirit formed out of the Virgin, a temple for God, the Logos, a temple in which he dwelt. Now listen to this last line. Sorry. Moreover, the incarnate God did not die. Now that's really important, these last two lines. The incarnate God did not die. And then he says, he raised up the one in whom he was incarnate. He raised up the one in whom he was incarnate. Do you see any problem there? Is that true to say the incarnate God did not die? I mean, as Catholics, do we believe that the incarnate God died? He died when he was raised. Right. God died, right? God, incarnate God died. Yeah. Okay, so this is where we're This is the waters we're getting into. It's called the communication of idioms. How you use language to talk about the human and divine properties of the incarnate God. He died in his hu- a human death. He died in virtue of his humanity. He did not die in virtue of his divine nature. The divine nature of God did not die on the cross. I mean, Hegel says that God died. God ceased to exist at the crucifixion. You have, Luther- you have modern Lutheran theologians who say God died on Good Friday. You know, God's atheism was true on Good Friday. You have people in modern theologians say that, but that's not Catholic. <coughs> He raised up the one in whom he was incarnate. What's the problem there? Two separate persons you're splitting apart. Absolutely. Right. That's Nestorius' problem. He wants to so safeguard uh, the distinction of the human and divine to protect the divine transcendence. You know, the divine nature cannot be affected by anything that happens. That what he does is, in fact, he creates two what he calls himself prosopoi. which means in Greek, persons. And he also talks about two hypostases. Two concrete subjects. 
There are two of them. So you have the divine person and you have the human person. There's a prosopon in singular. Singular in Greek is prosopon. You have a divine prosopon and a human prosopon or divine hypostasis, a human hypostasis. And to each there corresponds an usia or nature. There's the divine nature that remains imperishable and beyond all change. And they have the human nature which is subject to birth and corruption and suffering. Okay, so what's the problem? You end up with two subjects. Two natures in Christ and two persons. Two persons and two natures. Now he says, there's kind of one prosopoi, poem, there's kind of one person, he says, that is manifest in and through the two per- persons. So he talks about a kind of unity that, adhere, that you know, inheres in the, in the two, the cooperation of the two. But he, he, he's got a problem with the unity of the person of Jesus. So here's uh, the formulations of Nestorius. Uh, look at his first homily. Uh, again, this is probably, I think, I think this should be on your sheet. Yeah, the first homily against his uh, against the Theotokos. I revere the one who is born because of the one who carries him. And I worship the one I see because of the one who is hidden. God is undivided from the one who appears, and therefore I do not divide the honor of that which is not divided. I divide the natures, but I unite the worship. You see, he's not just distinguishing the two natures. He's actually, as he says quite accurately, he's dividing them. There are two. Per- there's the one who's born of Mary, and then there's one who bears him or is within him, who is the Word. He talks sometimes about the Word dwelling in the man Jesus as in a temple. So he's like, you've got two persons. In his second letter to Cyril, he says this. This is after the controversy begins, which I'm about to talk about in a minute. I do not see how you reintroduced as passable and newly created, let's say coming to be in time, one who had first been proclaimed as impassable, that's beyond suffering, and incapable of a second birth. As if the qualities which attach naturally to God the Logos are corrupted by his conjunction with his temple. The temple is the man Jesus. To attribute also to him in the name of this association the characteristics of the flesh that has been conjoined with him. Let's say to attribute to God, I mean birth and suffering and death. To say that God incarnate was born of the Virgin Mary, that God suffered on the cross, that God died. Is my brother either the work of a mind which truly errs in the fashion of the Greeks, let's say like pagan myths like Zeus and Hera. Or that of a a mind diseased with the inseam heresy of Arius and Apollinarius and the others who make the Logos directly the subject of Jesus' human action. What's the inseam? Sorry? What's the inseam? Where's that? The inseam heresy. That's the last one. Oh. Well, that's 19th century Anglican uh, translations. Uh, inseam. I, I believe it means insipid or something like that. Unseemly. I think. We'll look at the OUP and we'll uh, Oxford English Dictionary and get back to you, okay. Um, well, now this is a disaster, okay? But no, note the legitimate concerns. Okay, first, he wants to safeguard the reality of the humanity of Christ. He, against Apollinarius and Arius, he wants to say Jesus is a man with a fully human, full, complete human nature of body and soul. 
And secondly, he wants to sub- so safeguard the impassibility and transcendence of divinity. It's not as if when God is crucified, divine nature ceases to be, or God undergoes in himself and his eternal impassable deity uh, um, change, or, or, you know, it's not as if when we crucified God, we could make God cease to exist. You know, the Creator undergoes some kind of alteration. Okay? That, those are the legitimate concerns. But notice the problems, or two in particular. First, he, he falls into the language of two ontological subjects. There are two beings. The man Christ and the Logos. Two subjects, two prosopoi, or persons. And second, and here's also a big, this is a big problem I haven't spoken of yet explicitly. What is the union between the Word and the man Jesus? What kind of union is that? What do you think? It's a moral union. It's a union of concord of wills. Right, right now we have a moral union. We're trying to cooperate. You know, you're sitting here scribbling patiently. You're, you know, getting time off in purgatory because you're putting up with me. Right, and I'm in the, and the other side. I'm cooperating. I'm trying to kind of, you know, keep the ball rolling here. So there's a moral cooperation, but we're obviously not one substance, right? There's how many of us in this room? You know, ten substances, human substances besides the pictures and things. Okay, but that's the problem. That's what you've got here. You've got the logos cooperating or inspiring the man Jesus as dwelling in him like a temple and then you've got the holiness of the man Jesus who is like the uniquely is a uniquely holy saint who's particularly united by grace with, with the word but he, it's, a dis, it's a distinction of degree from us not a difference of kind the, the man Jesus is more united to the word by the influxes of light and grace than we are but he's not different in a, of a kind of in a specifically different way that's a problem. He's not the Word made flesh. God made man, right? So it's union, equivocally speaking. It's an operational union or moral union, which is accidental, to speak in metaphysical terms. It's a property of your substance. It's not what you are. Uh, like the relationship between God and a holy man. Rather than a personal union, which is substantial. So rather than an operational union, which is accidental, a personal union, which is substantial. That's say the person of the word subsisting as a man so that that man there substantially this man Jesus when I touch this man Jesus touch his wounds of his hands the substance I'm touching that being there is the word made flesh God subsisting as a man and this is what Cyril is going to point out Cyril is going to hone in on what he calls the hypostatic union which I'm going to talk about now Okay, now Cyril of Alexandria, who's he's probably the greatest Christological thinker in the ancient church. I think he's certainly the most consequential. Cyril of Alexandria was the patriarch of Alexandria, so he, uh, from around 378, he, was, he himself lives from 378 to 444. 378 to 444. So he comes a little further down the line than Athanasius. You get the point, you get the, the, the idea at this point that the, the, the Alexandrians understand themselves as kind of responsible for orthodoxy in the church. And this is actually what's going to lead to the schism that to this day persists the Coptic church because they're not going to accept Chalcedon. You're going to see that as a decrepit 
imposition or some the Rome and the Eastern Greek speaking, I mean, Northern Greek bishops going off the rails. Anyway, the lived and died in communion with the church. It was his successor who, who we got into problems. Cyril of Alexandria, of Alexandria then, who wrote directly against Nestorius, and he led the forces of Alexandrian Christology against him, ultimately triumphing at the Council of Ephesus in 341. Sorry, 431. It's a spoonerism. So, in, four, in 428, this controversy breaks out. Three years later, in 431, you have the Council of Ephesus, which is going to be led by Cyril, and where he's going to get um, the stories condemned. Okay, so for Cyril of Alexandria, the unity, the first principle of all of his theology is the unity of the person of Christ. And this serves as the basis for any right understanding of the mystery of the Incarnation. He is the theologian in the history of the Church who designated this mystery by the term hypostatic union. So just like Aquinas, Aquinas didn't come up with the term transubstantiation, but he really kind of let, gave weight to it theologically. And Athanasius didn't come up with homoousius, but he's really the theologian of the formula. What does it mean to say the Father and Son are one in being? Well, Cyril is the fellow who actually just came up with, but then also articulated the theology of the hypostatic union first. Hypostatic union. Well, we talk about hypostasis. That means person or subject, concrete subject. Union. Well, against Nestorius, we say is the union between God and man in Christ takes place where? Not in a moral cooperation between the man, Jesus, and the Logos, but in the very person of the Word. The union is in the person. This is going to be the mantra tomorrow, because this is where Aquinas starts when he starts with Christology. The union of humanity is not a moral operation, it's not an accident, it's substantial. The concrete subsistent person of Christ, the concrete subsistent person of Jesus, is the person of the Son. When you look at Jesus, when you listen to Jesus speak, when you touch the hand of Christ, you listen to, or you see, or you touch the Word, the Son incarnate, the person of the Son, the eternal Son. Who is God from God, life from life, true God from true God? He subsists in human nature. That's going to be Cyril's concrete theological realism. So if you look at the next quote on your page, this is now starting with Cyril of Alexandria in the third of the way down the page. He writes in his famous second letter to Nestorius, this is probably the most famous thing he wrote, we do not, I mean this, this letter, we do not say that the Logos became flesh by having his nature change. He's saying, I'm not saying the divinity underwent change in becoming, when God became man. Nor for that matter was he transformed into a complete human being composed out of soul and body. You, know, God didn't, you didn't have God cease to be God and become a man. On the contrary, we say in an unspeakable and incomprehensible way, Notice it's a mystery beyond our comprehension. The Logos united himself in his hypostasis, flesh enlivened by... Sorry, the Logos united to himself in his hypostasis, in the person of the, of the Son, flesh enlivened by a rational soul. Against Apollinarius insisting there is a human soul. And in this way, he became a human being and has been designated Son of Man. The Son of God became the Son of Man.
Now, the key phrase there is, he's saying the union is a mystery. It's unspeakable, ineffable, and incomprehensible. But we know that by faith, we know, the Logos united himself in his very person, united to himself in his very person, flesh enlivened by a rational soul. Now, this gives uh, rise to a particularly forceful use of what we call the communication of idioms. The communication of idioms, idioms means names. And the communication of idioms is a process in the fathers of the church and in the Bible, also already in Paul and John, where you refer both properties of Jesus as humanity and divinity to one person, the Word of God. We're going to talk about this more this afternoon in the, in the Tome of Leo. But for example, when we say uh, God was crucified, we attribute crucifixion to the person of the Word because it's something that happened to Him in His humanity. If we say the man Jesus created the stars, we attribute creation of the stars to Jesus because He created by virtue of His divinity. If we say God slept in a crib in Bethlehem, right? we attribute sleeping in a crib in Bethlehem to the second person of the Trinity because He lived a human life among us. Or if we say the man Jesus healed the blind man by virtue of His omnipotence, we say Jesus is omnipotent as God. We can attribute to Him omnipotence and the power to heal the blind man because this man, Jesus, is God. But notice, in all those cases, I'm always attributing acts of God or acts of humanity to one person, the Word incarnate. Right? That's why you can say, the Word incarnate was born of the Virgin Mary. Who was born of the Virgin Mary? God incarnate. Therefore, Mary is the mother of God. Now you can spend years, in years, thinking about that, just that way you use language. And Aquinas has an analysis of the Summa that's pretty technical. We're going to start to look at it a little bit more this afternoon in session and just sort of, you know, sort of think about how Leo, because Leo the Great comes back to this and he plays with this a lot. And just trying to show this, this go through this again, these communication of idioms. But let's look at this in, in the next quote here from... Um, this is from the Norris book, page 133, from the second letter. Uh, this is still from the second letter to Nestorius. Furthermore, we say that while the natures which were brought together into a true unity were different, there is nevertheless, because of the unspeakable and utter, unutterable convergence into unity, unity where? In the person of the Word, one Christ and one Son out of the two. There's one person, one concrete being, the Word incarnate. It is not that the Logos of God suffered in His own nature. I, so he's saying to Nestorius, I am not saying that the divine nature suffered on the cross. What would be the consequence of that? So if, he, if on the cross the divine nature suffered, then the Father suffered, the Holy Spirit suffered. You'd have just suffering in the very nature of God. So God would be eternal suffering. I mean, there would be eternal suffering in God. It would be a very... Um, regrettable form of salvation to be united to an eternally angst-ridden, suffering tri tri trinity, you know. Right? I mean, that's the point we need to get, to, you know. It is not that the Logos of God suffered in His own... I mean, the reason I say that is, if you read Jürgen Moltmann, The Crucified God, which is the most 
influential single work of post-Holocaust theology in the 20th century, Moltmann argues vividly uh, with all the logical consequences that at the cross the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all suffered and the suffering entered into the very identity of God. That God is in fact characterized eternally now by the, having lived to the mystery of the cross in his very being. Uh, so in a way to try to kind of overcome the angst of the 20th century, Moltmann puts the angst of the 20th century into the very deity of God. Uh, and it's very interesting to look at that, you know, sort of quickly uh, while passing by, you know, <laughs> keeping it on the straight highway. No, but I mean, Moltmann's worth reading for that reason. But you'll read about this if you read the unit. I have a, an article by Zeal Emery where he analyzes all this, which is fascinating. Okay. It is not that the Logos of God suffered in his own nature, divine nature, being overcome, as if God were overcome by stripes or nail piercing or any of the other injuries. For the divine, since it is incorporeal, is impassable. Again, impassibility here is the notion that the deity itself, the divine essence, is beyond suffering. Since, however, the body that had become his own underwent suffering, human body, he is said to have suffered these things truly for our sakes, for the imperishable one was within the suffering body. Whose body suffered? The sons. Similarly, with birth from Mary, the mother of God, as she was the, per the mother of the person born humanly to her, and that person was the Word. And with the death of, the, of, the, of, the God, of God, the Word on the cross, by virtue of the humanity, he died. We say God died physically. God underwent physical death, separation of body and soul. The person who was the subject of death, was the son. Okay. So, three years after the controversy broke out, in 428, three years later, 431, the Council of Ephesus was convened by Cyril, but with the support of papal legates. The Pope didn't come, but he sent papal legates from Rome, who carried papal bulls, who were on the side of Cyril. And Cyril, with the papal legates, had Nestorius condemned even before the Antiochine party, the people from Antioch who were more on Nestorius' side, could arrive. So Cyril was quite a, um, he was a thug. I mean, it's not a very nice thing to say about a saint, but he was a bit of a thug when it came to ecclesiastical politics. And some people say, oh, it was all about power and all that. And, you know, there's a lot of people who don't like Cyril. Um, I'm not going to say anything bad about them right now, but I mean, the point being, he, he did play political hardball in a sort of a way that was, um, has cast a little bit of a, a shadow over all this episode. However, uh, in God's good providence, the council was subsequently ratified by the Pope and is declared an ecumenical council of the church, and thus Mary was proclaimed a mother of God at Ephesus in 431, and Nestorius' teaching was, at least from a theological point of view, I would say, rightly condemned. Importantly, the council therefore vindicated the traditional use of this communication of idioms language that I've been talking about. Uh, the basic statement of doctrine of the council was the second letter of Cyril. He was not a man who was immune. Who was, he was not particularly, you know, um, paralyzed by shyness. He, he, they basically canonized his own letter as the doctrine of the church. Uh, they affixed the third letter of Cyril to Nestorius to the council as a kind of commentary. But this is interesting. The third letter, its authority as doctrine, was not subsequently accepted by the Pope, and therefore it was not officially considered part of the council, including the twelve anathemas, which are attached to it, if you've read those already. There are twelve anathemas afterwards. So the Pope said, okay, I'll take the second letter, not the third. However, 
they do become part of, when we get the Council of Chalcedon a generation later, and you get a kind of reaction of those who want to affirm the two natures. And then they attach the third letter of Cyril and they say, this is part of the doctrine of the church. So it does actually get, become part of the doctrine of the church later, but then balanced by things like the Tome of Leo. That it, Tome of Leo is kind of written to kind of say to Cyril, yes, but. Yes, there's one concrete person, but there are two natures. Um, so anyway, these anathemas that were in the third letter of, Nestori- of, of Cyril against Nestorius condemn formally Nestorius' description of divine and human properties to two distinct subjects. As if you could talk about the logos on one hand and a human man on the other. Let's just, uh, you have them now on your sheet there. I'm just going to read the first four of the twelve anathemas and comment on them briefly. If anyone does not confess that Emmanuel is God in truth, and therefore that the Holy Virgin is the mother of God, for she bore in a fleshly way the word of God become flesh, let him be anathema. Well, that's pretty straightforward. You have to say Mary's the mother of God. You know, that's pretty, you know. He really, he and Nestorius had a real, you know, this was a very sort of um, direct face-off, you know. And there was a winner and a loser. Um, my, my class felt sorry for Nestorius uh, when they read about all that. You, you, you first, far, I mean, Nestorius was wrong, but he kind of got, he sort of got the frying pan crashed over the top of his head and sent into exile by the emperor. Um, and it's funny, you know, he didn't really get, I mean, he wrote, a, he, wrote, he wrote a thing called The Bazaar of Heraclides, which has now been translated into English, which is a big book. It was after he went into exile, defending himself. And he wrote it, he lived to see the Council of Chalcedon. And he said, I was vindicated at the Council of Chalcedon. Now, he wasn't at all. I mean, but it's interesting to see how his, his intentions, you know, he sort of thinks he's, he thinks he's trying to hold for the, the kind of, just the reality of the human nature of Jesus and the fact that the two natures aren't mixed. Well, anyway. Second one. If anyone does not confess that the word from God the Father has been united by hypostasis, hypostatic union, with the flesh, and is one Christ with his own flesh, and is therefore God and man together, let him be anathema. Now see, that's doctrine of the church now. Where is the union of God and man in Christ? It's in the person. It's not a moral union. of a very, We can't say Jesus was a very holy man cooperating somehow with the Spirit of God or a temple in which the Word of God dwelt or all these other things that Jehovah's Witnesses and all these other people think of. That's all baloney. Jesus is the Word of God. And the union is in the hypostasis. The, the humanity of Jesus is united to his divinity in his very person. So, everything human in Jesus, also, of course, uh, everything you can denote in him that's human, also um, pertains to his person. Right? I mean, if you talk about Jesus' fingernails, that the fingernails of the incarnate word. Because they're united hypostatically to the deity. If anyone, the third uh, anathema, if anyone divides in the one Christ, the hypostases after the union, joining them only by a conjunction of dignity or authority or power, he's talking about what I'm calling a moral union, and not rather by a coming together in a union by nature, let him be anathema. Now see, that's an ambiguous phrase. You see, there's where the problem breaks out that's going to lead to Chalcedon. That's not just a hypostatic union in the person, but he uses that ambiguous phrase in a union by nature. It's vague. Does that mean that the two natures are united? You see? 
And some people are going to say, yes, it does. And they're going to become the, what they call the monophysite party, meaning mono, one, monophysis, one in nature. There are going to be some people who say there's one nature after the union, therefore there's one person and one nature. There's no distinction of divine human nature. And that's going to have to be rejected. And that Chalcedon's going to come along and say, no, there's one person, one hypostatic union, but there's still a distinction of natures. The deity and humanity are not identical. A monophysite. Good question. I'll talk about that next. That's that's actually next on the, the next question. That's and that's a that's a scholarly debate, and I, I'll, I'm about to refer to it. So fourth anathema: If anyone distributes between the two persons or hypostases the expressions used either in the Gospels or in the apostolic writings, meaning like Paul whether they are used by the holy writers of Christ or by, himself, by him about himself, and ascribe some to him as a man, thought of separately from the word from God, and others as befitting God to him as to the word from God the Father, let him be an athlete. You can't say, well, I mean, what Cyril will say is, some t- he, Cyril said things like, when you talk about Christ in the Gospels, it's referring to the man Jesus. When you talk about the Son, it's referring to the uncreated the Son, who's eternally from the Father. And these are two different prosopon, two different persons. And they're saying, no. Whether you talk about the Christ, or whether you talk about the Son, whether you talk about the Word, or whether you talk about Jesus of Nazareth, these are always the same person, the Word incarnate. Okay. Now, here's the problem. Our dear friend Apollinarius, he meant well, but he was a bit of a buffoon. Alright, so Apollinarius... You'd think, well, what's he got to do with this? Well, nothing really, except a pure accident of history. He wrote the word for nature. So we're using hypostasis for person. And we're, we're, this is all saying we're in the hypostatic union. There's one person in Christ, one hypostasis. The word for nature, from which we get the word physics, study of nature, is phusis. Okay. Apollinarius wrote some letter somewhere, I don't recall where it's in Kelly somewhere, where he talks about in Greek, miaphusis in Christ. Mia in Greek means one. One nature in Christ after the union. The phrase he uses famously is there's one nature in Christ after the union. Well, you say, well that's no big deal. Apollinarius we know anyway is not sound. He didn't even believe Jesus has a human soul. What's the big deal? Well, he wrote this treatise, and as you know, they didn't have sort of librarians and internet in the way they did in the ancient world. This treatise gets lost and reshuffled. And uh, in the generation after Sealer of Alexandria, no, sorry, in the generation after Athanasius, it resurfaces as a writing of Athanasius. So people in the ancient world read it and they think, oh, Athanasius said after the union of the Logos with the flesh there was one nature in the Incarnate Word. Now, Athanasius never said that, but Apollinarius did. But it got mistaken for Athanasius' thought. Therefore, it had a moral authority. It's like if we believe Thomas Aquinas said something he never said. And we don't say, well, Thomas Aquinas thinks that. But of course, we're affirming something completely different. Right? I mean, I'm just using an analogy. But, so, people think mistakenly, Athanasius said there's one nature after the union. And the, mo- the person who's most interested in this is none other than Cyril of Alexandria. So Cyril uses this phrase, as Blessed Athanasius said, there is one nature after the union. Now what does he mean by nature? 
he means there's one concrete substance. In fact, Cyril doesn't really distinguish between this word, hypostasis, and this word, thusis. I mean, <coughs> when he says there's one concrete person, hypostasis, he, he's also going to say there's one concrete nature after the union. He's not thinking yet in terms of two natures, the divine nature and the human nature. I mean, it's, it, his mind is kind of unsettled about this, because at the same time you just saw in these writings, he said, his divine nature does not undergo any change in the union, the divine nature. And he says he had a body and a soul, a full human nature, against Apollinarius. Now his opponents begin to point out to him, you know, there's an incoherence here, because the Antiochian school of Antioch, the Christians in Antioch was also a big theological school, they had people like Theodore of Mopsuestia, who was taught Nestorius. And Theodore of Mopsuestia had problems in his thought, like those of Nestorius. But they begin to say, hey Cyril, watch out, you're saying there's one nature after the union, that phrase is very problematic. You admit there's a humanity with a body and soul. You admit the divine nature doesn't change. So why are you talking about you know, two natures? I mean, one nature instead of two. Now, they eventually, there was a, uh, this, this became a controversy, and I'm going to just go rapidly just mention this. Uh, it became a controversy. Um, at, so 431, you have Ephesus. The next two years, there's debate about this between Antioch and Alexandria. Because the Antiochians are like, well, we don't buy this idea of one nature. And, and Alexandria is saying, we won, we have Ephesus, the Pope's on our side, blah, blah, you know, submit to us. You know. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying they were actually so juvenile, but there was, you know, there was a feeling of that the score had been settled. But in fact, uh, because of this ambiguity about the natures, you had to, they kept um, debating. And they, in fact, reached in 433 a decision uh, of how to come to a unity. In a, in a do so Cyril was, in fact, capable of magnanimity and um, um, a kind of doctrinal self-clarification, self uh, self-rectification. And so with the patriarch of Antioch, whose name was John, Patriarch John of Antioch, Cyril signed a formula of, or agreed to, accepted a so-called formula of union in 433. I don't think I've put it on your sheet. Oh no, I do, I have it there. Oh good, let's read that. It's at the end of the Twelve Anathemas. So, and in this, in this formula, Cyril accepts that you can use, and should probably use, the language of two natures. So in the end, he, he comes down on, there's one hypostatic union, one person, but we can talk about a language of two natures. We confess then, our Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, perfect God and perfect man. You see the, the concern of Antioch? There's a full, there's a, Jesus has the fullness of deity, but also a complete humanity against Apollinarius. A rational soul and body, begotten before all ages from the Father and His Godhead, as Nicaea says, God from God, light from light. And in the same, uh, and in the last days for us and for our salvation, born of Mary the Virgin, according to His humanity. And now listen to this. <coughs> One and the same, consubstantial with the Father and Godhead. The word consubstantial there in Greek is homoousius. He's homoousius, or one in essence or nature, consubstantial with the Father in Godhead, in his, in his divine nature, consubstantial with us in His humanity. That's the new part. Now they're saying, He's homoousius with the Father in His deity, and He's homoousius with us in His humanity. For a union of two natures took place. A union of two natures took place. 
Therefore we confess one Christ, one Son, one Lord, one person. See, against Nestorius. According to this understanding of the unconfused union, so a union in the person, but an unconfused union of two natures. The two natures aren't mixed. We confess the Holy Virgin to be the mother of God because God the Word took flesh and became man and from His very conception united to Himself the temple He took from her. He united to Himself the temple of His body and soul. Not the temple of another person, the man Jesus, but the temple of His body and soul. As to the evangelical and apostolic expressions about the Lord, we know that the theologians treat some as com in, in common as of one person and distinguish others as of two natures and interpret the God-befitting ones in connection with the Godhead of Christ and the lowly ones with His humanity. So when Christ obeys or is ignorant, we ascribe that to His humanity. When Christ is able to... Uh, we say Christ, the word, God, Christ is the uncreated wisdom through whom all things were made, we ascribe that to His divinity. Even though those things both pertain to Him in His person. Now, there's a commentary on this. This formula was written by John, I think, but then there's a commentary on the formula in what, what he called his letter of peace, which, uh, back to John, which Cyril states, But since God, the Word, who came down from heaven, uh, came down from above and from heaven, emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, that's, of course, Philippians 2, which we looked at yesterday, and was called Son of Man, though all the while he remained what he was, that is, God, for he is unchangeable and immutable by divine nature, he is said to come down from heaven, but since he is now understood to be one with his own flesh, and he has therefore been designated the man from heaven, being both perfect in Godhead and perfect in humanity, and thought of as in one person, for there is one Lord Jesus Christ, even though we do not ignore the difference of natures, out of which we say the ineffable union was affected. Now he doesn't go as far as to say, after the union there are two natures. You notice he's reticent about that. But he's saying, I agree with the way you say it is compatible with the faith, and here's how I'd say it. It's a convergence. In other words, it's not identity, but a convergence. He's saying, well, we have two different ways of talking about the same mystery, but I think we're basically headed in the same direction. However, after his death, his followers refused the language of the formula of reunion, the formula of union. It was rejected by the next patriarch of Alexandria. Who happened, and this was just a few years later. So, 433, you have what we just read. The next fellow is a fellow named Bishop Dioscorus. D-I-O-S-C-O-R-U-S. Dioscorus of Alexandria. And he refuses this formula. Setting the stage for what would become the Coptic schism. The schism of the Coptic Church. Which didn't become final until they refused the Council of Chalcedon. So we've got a crisis brewing in 433. Uh, a little after 433. And how does that happen? Well, 15 years elapse between the reunion and the, and the, and the real the crisis leads to Chalcedon in 448. And it all begins because of a bad monk whose name was Eutyches. Now, Eutyches doesn't live in Alexandria, but he's a monk, an anchorite, I think, living in Constantinople. Constantinople... People are a little bit more balanced in Constantinople theologically, but this guy is a fireball thrower. You know, he's a he's a sort of bomb thrower, who's a monk who's deeply Alexandrian in sympathies, and who rejects the Antiochine formula of peace, and starts writing uh, that he says his famous uh, phrase is, 
There were two natures before the union, but there was one afterwards. So he takes that kind of slant of thought in Cyril that could suggest one nature, and he just goes all the way. Puts car and gear drives into the wall. These guys are helpful, though. You know, it's kind of nice to have somebody kind of just say say the error just so blithely, you know, so directly, because then you have to kind of refute it. He uh, has a famous image: the humanity of Jesus is united to the divinity like a drop of honey dropped into the sea. Right, what happens to a drop of honey in the sea? It disappears. So after the union. You really only have one nature, and it's kind of the divine nature, because the divine nature is infinite. So the human nature kind of, bloop, you know, just disappears into the... It's not annihilated, but rather absorbed into the very substance of the divinity. So he refused to say there were two natures after the union, and therefore he also refused the idea that Christ was consubstantial with us in our humanity. Now see, this is a disaster. You have the incarnation and Jesus ceases to be human because the humanity is kind of absorbed into divinity. Disaster. And this seemed to suggest to his critics that that the humanity of Christ was more apparent than real. And so they associated his teaching with that of Apollinarius because Apollinarius didn't believe there was a full humanity and with Valentinus the Gnostic who believed that Jesus didn't have a real human body. He said, well, if you don't think he's got a real humanity because he's just absorbed into divinity then you're just like the Gnostics. You don't really believe there's a real body, a a real body and soul. In any case, in 448, his teaching was denounced as heretical by a local synod in Constantinople. Under the bishop Flavian, who was the patriarch of Constantinople in 448, and poor Eutyches was excommunicated. However, the bishop of Alexandria, Dioscorus, refused the excommunication and defended him. And thus you had the beginnings of a new heresy called monophysitism. The teaching that there's mono, one, physis, nature. There's one nature in Christ after the union. Sorry? Oh, monophysitism, yeah. Sure. Monophysitism. And monophysitism has a long shelf life because it comes back in cycles. Uh, first, that there's one nature, and then after that gets reviews that there's one one activity in Christ. That there's there's only there's a man united, the, the humanity and divinity are united, but that there's one divine activity that gets rejected. And then the, the idea that there's one will in Christ, there's divine will, no human will, that gets rejected. And you have a series of councils to kind of beat down the monophysite tendency to minimize the reality of the humanity of Jesus, which comes back and back and back. Now we have the opposite problem. We've moved into another phase of Christological history where nobody believes in his divinity. Right? So now we've all we've <laughs> the problem now is everybody's like, you know, thinks he was a human being and mostly our chum. But um, uh, it's very hard to convince people that the transcendent God became man. In any case. Um, So, what happens? Leo the Great, who was the Pope in Rome in 448, gets involved in this, reads Eutyches' teaching, says, this is horrific, 
I'm intervening, he writes the famous tome of St. Leo the Great of Rome, sends it to Flavian, it's also therefore called the Tome to Flavian, who was the Bishop of Constantinople, and excoriates in a very sophisticated theology this terrible error of Eutyches that minimizes the reality of the humanity of Jesus. But, He's very sensitive to Ephesus, the notion that there's this union in the person, and so he has this whole articulate theology here, which I'm going to skip, because we're going to, we're going to look at Leo this afternoon a little bit. And then in, so that, that controversy, the excommunication of Eutyches in 448, in 451 AD, there's the Council of Chalcedon, there were 500 bishops present. It was conducted under the, the influence of Emperor Marcion, under the uh, M-A-R-C-I-A-N. Flavian's there. The Pope sends legates. And they reaffirm the hypostatic union and the teaching of Ephesus. There's one personal union of the humanity and divinity, but they also, against the Monophysites, reaffirm, they, uh, affirm quite clearly the consubstantiality of Christ's the distinction of the two natures, there's a distinction in Christ of his divine human natures, and that he's consubstantial with the Father in his divine nature, he's consubstantial with us in his human nature. I'm going to read their writings in a moment, but I want to just make the point, they canonized as an authentic doctrine of the faith the second and third letters of Cyril. Why? To give a very strong reaffirmation of Ephesus and of the unicity, the unity of the person of the Son incarnate, precisely because they're trying now to keep the Egyptians in the church. They're trying to say, Cyril, we are totally Cyrillian. We are with Cyril. But they also canonize the tome of Leo, emphasizing the distinction of natures and condemning Eutyches. So they say, on the one hand, we condemn the Storianism. There's, no, there's not two subjects in Christ. There's one person in Christ. On the other hand, we condemn Eutyches and Monophysism. There are two natures in Christ. One person and two natures. And they added a statement of faith composed of these two these various influences so here I don't think I gave it to you which is lame but uh, they have it. okay somewhere yeah yeah so we're, I'm going to just go through Chalcedon briefly and then comments okay great so uh, I don't know where this starts in your text but this is, I'm just going to read a paragraph following the Holy Fathers Sorry about that. Following the Holy Fathers, we unanimously teach and confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man, composed of rational soul and body, consubstantial with the Father as to His divinity and consubstantial with us as to His humanity. So, Homoousius, one in essence or being with the Father, one in essence and being with us. Like us in all things but sin. He was begotten from the Father before all ages as to His divinity, and in these last days for us and for our salvation was born as to His humanity of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. Right, so they're saying the Mother Mary is the Mother of God. So all that is really an insistence on the unity of the person Jesus. It's the same Son who is eternally begotten of the Father who has become in time a human being born of Mary. 
But they also emphasize the distinction of natures. There's a complete human nature and a divine nature, and he's consubstantial with the Father in his human nature. His divine nature, consubstantial with us in his human nature. Then they go on and say, We confess one and the same Christ, Lord, and only begotten Son, to be acknowledged in two natures. And then they say this, Two natures without confusion, change, division, or separation. Alright, that's really important. That's, that's to correct against monasticism. You don't have a fusion of the two natures. You don't have a change of one nature into the other. You don't have um, a separation of the two natures, as you would have with Nestorius. And, and uh, you don't have a, um, a division of the two as if they're opposed to each other. And then it says, the distinction between natures was never abolished by their union. That's really important. The two natures are united, but they're not abolished. The distinction is not abolished. So they're distinct, but not separate. They're united, but they're not identical. But rather, the character property each of the two natures was preserved as they came together in one person, the word in Greek, prosopon, and one hypostasis against Nestorius. So it's a very careful balancing act, and it's a very articulate one. They're working between the extremes of a distinction of persons and a fusion of natures. Against the distinction of persons, they, they affirm unequivocally there's one person, Christ and Lord, the Word made flesh. Against uh, the, the fusion of natures, they affirm a distinction without separation, a distinction without confusion of the two natures, which are united in the person of Christ. Now, you know, this leads to more mystery, you know. How is, how is it we understand the hypostatic union? And Aquinas is going to go, you know, put the, he's going to put the mental machinery in, in fifth gear for this. And look, he's going, to, he's going to peer into this mystery metaphysically, respectfully, but at great length. We're going to spend a little bit of time on that tomorrow. And so that, that'll be the part where, you know, really it's, it's like the first time you read it, it's like, this is, I'm not getting this, you know. And the second time you read it, you say, I don't, I don't understand this. <laughs> the third time you read it, you say, I think I understand something. <laughs> but tomorrow will be the first time. <laughs> so, you know, it's tough. It's tough reading Aquinas on this. But he basically says, you know, how can you have the divine nature and the human nature united in the person of the Word, and yet you, can say, you, you have to say Jesus' humanity and His divinity are distinguishable. You're not fused. But He's one person. And Aquinas wants to kind of appear into that more deeply. Now, it's important to start with the fact that it's a mystery, but it's a mystery which has certain parameters. You know, so that's what we're going to look at tomorrow. But to, this afternoon, what we'll do is we'll get out the Tome of St. Leo and we'll kind of look at some of the language he uses for this. Come back to this a little bit. That's an excellent question. I think it's a modern discovery. I think it's like a 19th or 20th century. Is it what? I mean, sister asked a question and said it was a nice question. I would like to hear it. Oh, I asked, when did they find out that Athanasius didn't write that? But, um, but that it was Apollinarius. Um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I believe that's a modern discovery. Yeah, I think it's 19th or 20th century when they realized... It might be it might be earlier, but I don't think so.